Amen. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is the only means by which our sins can be atoned for. And we be saved. Of course, we could atone for our sins ourselves. We are very grateful for the blood of Jesus that paid the penalty that our sins demanded. So Bibles and outlines are being passed out for you. We're going to be continuing in 2 Peter this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, so please go ahead and open up your Bible to there. 2 Peter chapter 1, near the end of your Bible in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter, up to this point, has been explaining how it is that Christians mature, how it is that Christians are sanctified, how they are made holy by the work of God. You see, God has given to his church these precious and these great promises. And Peter intends for the church to receive them all. His hope is that the church will receive all of these precious and great promises. And all this is important in light of a problem that he foresees coming. The problem of apostasy. The problem of people who are part of a church leaving the truth as it is in Christ at some point. And then, which of course would mean that they wouldn't receive those precious and great promises that he has already extolled upon in the beginning parts of this chapter. And so it's obviously a serious matter, this issue of apostasy, a serious matter for the church in every generation in this age between the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is often confused with and confronted with deviations from the faith once and for all delivered to the saints by by Christ and his apostles and the prophets. And this matter is especially on the heart of the Apostle Peter at the time of his writing for a specific reason that we're going to get to this morning in, the, in our text. So let's read our passage and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word in prayer. But the reading of the word of the Lord beginning at verse 12 in 2 Peter chapter 1. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts, that we may receive it with joy and gladness, that you would give us over to remembering the truths that you taught, Lord Jesus Christ, and that the spirit which you have sealed us with would act so that this means of grace would be made effectual to us, to our growing, to our further sanctification, to our conformity to you. And we pray that you would do it all for your glory's sake. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder this morning if Charles Wesley is a name that is familiar to you all. He, uh, this man, Charles Wesley, he's brother to John Wesley, the, the preacher associated with the Methodist denomination and Wesleyanism. And who this John Wesley especially was very popular at the time of the Great Awakening. Uh, he and George Whitfield especially, they stand out the most really as far as preaching goes. 
but Charles' contribution to history and to the church wasn't so much preaching as it was with his older brother. Don't get me wrong, he was a preacher as well. He even, I read, preached to some crowds in the thousands. And actually, these brothers, they come from a, a massive family. Charles is actually the youngest of 18 children. But we remember Charles most for, and we appreciate him most for, his prolific hymn writing. He's said to have composed over 6,500 hymns, perhaps even as much as 8,989 for the church. And so if you don't recognize the name Charles Wesley, I'm sure, I'm sure that you'll recognize some of his hymns. They have endured the test of time. Uh, songs like, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, and the Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That's Charles Wesley. Those hymns and many, many, many more were all from his pen. But I bring him up this morning because of what he wrote on his deathbed. Uh, the year is 1788, and Brother Charles is in peace. He's at home in his bed, and he knows that death is near. He can feel it, as it were. His health was declining, and it was clear to him that he would soon traverse that heavily Jordan into the promised land to be with his Savior. His family was gathered around him, and some of them wrote descriptions of how he died. His death was not remarkably, or really remarkable, except for the fact that it was such a remarkably Christian way of dying. His attended physician at his bedside said that he possessed that state of mind which he had always been pleased to see in others, unaffected humility and holy resignation to the will of God. He had no transports of joy, but solid hope and unshaken confidence in Christ, which kept his mind in perfect peace. He was extremely weak in his final days, but whenever his wife and daughter would ask him if he need any, needed anything, he would simply re reply, it is said, nothing but Christ. That was what he was thinking of. And, and on his deathbed, he took to writing one final hymn, the last hymn of his career, of his life. In his final, it's his final words, his farewell address as far as songwriting goes. And it, he writes this short hymn titled, Aged and Helpless. And it goes like this. In age and feebleness extreme, whom shall a helpless worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch one smile from thee and drop into eternity. The hymn writer has him who motivated his pen on his mind there in his last moments. He's at the end of his life, and this rhyme is, is racing through his mind, and so I'm not sure if he wrote it down or if someone who was there with him wrote it down and penned it for him, so that he has this one last thing to leave behind. It's like a final address, a last thought or an encouragement that will remain after, in what are comparably moments, he's gone. And so I wonder, you know, suppose you were near the end of your life, and you knew it, what final words would you want to leave? Suppose you had an opportunity to give your farewell address. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Uh, most of us never really think of death that much. It, not like, because we, we don't want to be morbid in that sense. But even in the light of the reality of it, most of us don't really think about death until we're actually at a funeral. And you could probably, probably remember being at a funeral 
Uh, you hear a eulogy, a short sermon, and then often people are given time to extol the virtues of the one who is deceased. And I wonder, you know, what if the deceased person was still there? What might they want to say to all of their friends and their family who gathered? Perhaps it's the very same thing that people are extolling of them, but maybe not. What would you say if you knew? What would you say if you knew maybe you had six months or six years? What would you want to convey to your family? What would you want to convey to this church? Is there a testimony that you would want to leave behind? And I know it's difficult to think about because no one wants to resign ourselves to dying. But unless Christ comes again very soon, we all will at some point. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you've already died once as it were anyway. You've died to self and you've been risen with Christ. And no matter what happens to these often weak and, and frail bodies, these tents, we know that we will live with and forever with and because of our merciful and gracious God and Savior. A Puritan Samuel Rutherford was on his deathbed and someone close by him with a pen was able to capture his dying testament. It said this, Dear brethren, do all for him. Pray for Christ, preach for Christ, do all for Christ. Beware of men pleasing. The chief shepherd will shortly appear. That's good. A, a good final word from a, from a brother. But what about us? Uh, what last words, what exhortation, what encouragement, what would your farewell address sound like? What testimony would you leave? There are actually a number of what we call testaments in the Bible, whether we've picked up on them as we read or not. And typically they have five formal elements to them. Uh, number one, there is a prediction of death. Number two, there is a prophecy of future crisis. Three, there is a, an extortions to virtue. And then fourth, a commission. And lastly, like a legacy of the author, a legacy of the one who is giving the testament. Uh, Jacob has one at the end of Genesis. Moses has another one in Deuteronomy 33. Joshua has one in Joshua 24. The Apostle Paul gives one in Acts 20 when he leaves the Ephesian elders. And again in 2 Timothy. And Jesus has a very lengthy farewell address in the upper room with his disciples as recorded in John chapter 13 all the way through until he's praying in John chapter 17, uh, right before his betrayal there in the garden. And in Jesus' farewell address, he teaches them about the Trinity. He teaches them about what it means to be part of the covenant community. He teaches them to love one another and talks about the Holy Spirit in light of the new covenant. Things we would expect of Jesus, I think. But Peter gives his farewell address here in the book that we've been studying. Peter knows he's about to die. He says he realizes that he is about to put off, or the putting off of his body will be soon. That's part of the reason why he's writing this. If you look at verse 13 and 14 in the ESV, which is probably what most of you have, it renders it as body. He's putting off this body. The LSB, which is the Legacy Standard Bible, translates it as an earthly dwelling, and I prefer that a little bit more. But if you notice in the ESV, if you look down at the footnotes on the page, those teeny tiny little letters that I understand are not very easy to see are there at the bottom. But point number eight there points out that in the Greek, this word for body is best translated as a, as a tent. Whereas the ESV refers to the body and that's fine, but it doesn't, doesn't quite 
capture the intent of the word. It's not emphatic enough because the idea that Peter is getting after here in the Greek is that this body is just an, is an earthly dwelling, which seems to say more actually than just a body. It's a, it's a tent, a tabernacle. This term in the Greek is pronounced skonoma, which is used here in verses 13 and verse 14. And it's also used in Acts 7, 46. Let me read that for you. And I'll begin in, at the start of the sentence, which is actually in the middle of verse 45. There we read, So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place. That's the same word that's used for body there in, in 2 Peter. For the God of Jacob. But obviously in Acts 7, 45, in the testimony that Luke is recording there, he's not talking about the incarnated Christ. This is about the time of David. He's talking about the tabernacle, the, the temple. It's this dwelling place for God in that context. And so when we come back to 2 Peter thinking about that, the Apostle Peter here is thinking of his body as a dwelling place, a tabernacle or a tent. And so in verse 13 he says, I am in this tent. And in verse 14 he notes that he'll soon be putting off this tent of his. And there's something to that metaphor. The Apostle Peter, mind you, he's not some Gnostic. He's not trying to say that the body is material and it's of less value or less importance than the spiritual aspect of himself. But he's saying something by using this terminology. Think of a tent. Some of you may not like camping as much as I do. Maybe you have a camper or an RV. Those are, those are really cool. But we use a tent. It's a big tent, of course. But it's a tent. And when you think of a tent... What comes to mind? Probably all the reasons that people don't like tent camping. Uh, <laughs> they're weak. They're meant to be temporary. They don't provide a lot of comfort. They're destructible, sometimes a little too destructible. And they don't protect you from the elements very well. The last time my family went camping this year, in the summer, mind you, it managed to rain all through the night and well into the afternoon on what became our last day of camping. And I mean, it rained hard. Like there was like a little river going underneath our tent, but that wasn't the worst of it. One of our friends who was there with us, they experienced what you could really only call like, like tent trauma. It was traumatic morning. It was bad. And by the late morning, when everyone was scrambling to pack up and leave, it was still pouring the whole time, they had about four inches of water in the bottom of their tent. It's, it's almost enough to make you not want to go tent camping again, I know. They needed a new tent. But that's the problem with tents. They don't last forever. They aren't meant to last forever. You don't expect to live your whole life in a tent, most of us. There have been a couple times when I've camped and I've spent a few days in a tent that when it was over, I was reminded of how glad I was to be able to return to a house with a nice soft bed. I'm glad that after it's said and done, there's something greater than a tent that I can return to. And Peter um, isn't the only one, though, to refer to his body as a tent. The Apostle Paul uses this language as well. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just a little bit to the left. This metaphor of the body just being a tent isn't something that only Peter used. Apostle Paul speaks of it the same way. 
So this is 2 Corinthians 5, and we begin at verse 1. We'll read to verse 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we, we have these earthly dwellings, these bodies, but note the comparison that the Apostle Paul makes about the earthly body in comparison to the heavenly one. He makes similar comments in 1 Corinthians 15. You might remember that from a few months back. But in heaven, the body, the, the dwelling place, it's sturdy. It's secure. It's an eternal dwelling. It's a strong building being made by God, a house constructed by God. But this body, these bodies, they're, they're a tent. Not a house, but a tent. Now don't misunderstand me here. This doesn't mean that our bodies don't matter or that our bodies are bad. The body is good. We know that it is good because God made the physical world and he said that it was all good. Mankind is what we call a composite being. We're made up of two parts, physical and spiritual or material and immaterial. Immaterial would be the spirit and or slash soul, the will, the mind, the memory, the conscience, etc., Physical or material would be our, our organs, our hair, our blood, the body. And both are good and both are important and both should be cared for, especially by the Christian. But at the end of the day, these bodies could be described as a tent. They're good, but one day they'll be better. And we're going to have resurrection bodies. That which is perishable will be raised imperishable. But these present bodies that we have now, they're temporary. They're tents, and that's a good metaphor for us to remember as we get older. That's how the Apostle Peter and Paul looked at it, uh, the sicknesses that we have to deal with here and now, the aches, the pains, the not being able to do the things that we used to be able to do or not being able to do them as well, at least. That's typical for a tent. Uh, we all get older. By God's grace, we hit 30, 40, 70, 80 some even longer. And generally speaking, nobody really likes getting older. At the same time, I'm at a point in my life right now where I definitely wouldn't want to be a teenager or a 20-something as well. But we should really not try to let ourselves get discouraged at the process of getting older or even the thought of getting older. There are things that we can do to mind these bodies that God gave us, but at some point, you're just not going to be able to run or walk as far as you used to. Our joints will start to make noise. Things just start to hurt for what seems like no reason at all. Like how is sleeping wrong an actual thing? But it is. My babies sleep like they're contortionists working for Cirque du Soul, and then they wake up fine the next day. There's no problem at all. It's hard to get old. These tents wear out. But guess what? In all of that, for the Christian, you're not losing your building. You're not losing your reward. 
God is building a house for you, an eternal body. We pack up these tents. They get put away. They serve us for a while, for a time, but they're not meant to last forever. And the end of a life for the Christian is the beginning of a life that is far better. The end of a life for a Christian is the beginning of a life that is far better. Now, that's not to downplay death. Death is an enemy, certainly. But for the Christian, when these tents are put off, what we have waiting for us is far better. Might that bring us some encouragement, some joy to be mingled with our sadness in light of death? The church, the, the living church of Jesus Christ, is the only institution on earth or in creation that has any hopeful answer to the question of death. And it's all based upon what Christ Jesus has done in the covenant of grace. The Father chose you from the creation of the world, before the creation of the world. Jesus, was the son of, Jesus, the Son of God, was promised. He was prophesied about and at the right time. He was born of a virgin. He was incarnated. And he lived a holy life, never once sinning. True God and true man in one person. And he died, not because he deserved death or he earned death, but because he was dying for you. Dying for all those who were chosen and given to him by his Father. He was a substitute in your place, a once and for all sacrifice for those who would believe, a sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter who died upon a cross and took the wrath that your sin earned. And he didn't stay dead. He was risen for your justification so that you may have eternal life. And he was exalted to the right hand of the Father where he lives to make intercession for you. He's your advocate and your mediator. And he's given to you his spirit to seal you and to be a promise of the inheritance he earned for you. That the life that awaits you is greater than the life you're experiencing even now. Christian, you owe everything to the Lord Jesus. He's done it all. It's his works. It's his righteousness and his righteousness alone that saves you and makes you to be fit for heaven. We receive Christ and all the benefits he supplies us. And when we come to the end of our lives, and it's time to pack up these tents. We know that a house built by God is awaiting us, all because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Chapter 31, Article 1, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith says this. It says, The bodies of those who have died return to dust and undergo destruction, but their souls neither sleep nor neither die nor sleep because they have an immortal character and immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and are received into paradise. They are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory while they wait for the full redemption of their bodies. That, that house built by God as the Apostle Peter or Paul describes it. And that is what the Apostle Peter is meaning when he speaks of putting off his body and why it doesn't bother him. But note what he also says about this. He believes that the putting off of his body will be something that happens soon. Verse 14. He's, he's near the end of his life. And before he, he, his life does end, he feels pressure to remind the church of these important things. But how does he know he's going to die soon? He's writing this letter somewhere around 60 A.D. That's when it seems most likely that this letter was written. And so that would mean that he's probably in his 50s or 60s, which at that time would have been considered pretty old. He'd be on borrowed time if, you know, I'm sure they probably didn't use that phrase back then, like we might. But he's an old man, and he probably could figure that based off of that, his time to put off his body would be soon. 
Plus, it's very likely that persecutions under Nero had already begun. The, quote, great fire of Rome that took place in 64, 64 AD. And that... That's the fire, actually, that Nero blamed on the Christians and used as motivation for the intense persecutions that he championed. And so putting all that together, the, the rise, the rising of Nero, his old age, it seems like it would be obvious to Peter that his time would be soon. He's old, living longer than most in that culture. There is persecution unto death occurring around him. And he understands that his death would also come in a way that kept with the word of the Lord. Remember what is said at the end of verse 14. He says, This coming death is what the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to him. So let's turn to the gospel according to John, chapter 21. John 21, the last chapter in John's gospel. Now, at the time of Peter's writing his letter, it's not like the canon, the New Testament canon, is completed already. Peter, like I said, it was, he was writing his letter around, probably around 60 AD, somewhere around that time. And most likely, John's gospel hasn't even been written at this point. But John, when he does write, he writes about a conversation that Peter had with his Lord. And so this is verse 18, and it comes right on the heels of that famous exchange between Peter and Jesus, where Jesus tells Peter to feed my sheep. He tells him it three times. Okay, this happens, this, this part comes right after that. And I'm, I'm sure he's probably, as Peter is writing Second Peter, I'm sure he's probably thinking of that conversation that he had with Jesus as well. But verse 18 in John 21 says this, Truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19 and this, John is adding this. You can tell that by how the ESV puts it in parentheses. This isn't something that Jesus said, but this is something that John, under inspiration of the Spirit, added to this conversation to elaborate upon it and tell us what was happening here. He says in verse 19, This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. That's interesting. Peter's death was to glorify God. Peter, I'm sure, wants to glorify God in both life and death. And so Jesus explains to him how even in his death, he would bring glory to God. This man who abandoned Christ before the crucifixion would now, by grace, be faithful all the way unto death. Jesus told Peter that he would be a martyr. It's hard to think of something more weightier to be given for, to you by the Lord. Hey, Peter guess what? You're going to be a martyr. You're going to be killed for what you believe. And Peter has just been living with that this whole time. He's been ministering faithfully, knowing how it will come to an end. And so now he's old. Nero is seeking Christians intentionally and persecution is escalating. And Peter remembers that the Lord has spoken to him and told him how he was going to die. Now is his time. It's close. It's time, his time has come to an end. And eventually, as John Fox records, that is how Peter died, giving glory to God, even arms stretched out, as it were. He was said to be crucified, but crucified upside down, not feeling worthy to be put to death in the same way as his beloved Savior. And this soon-to-come death 
compelled him to remind the Christians of the importance of remembering, which sounds like a weird thing. But this coming death of his tent compelled him to remind believers that they need to remember, that they need to remember, remember specific things. We even see that at the moment of his death, history records. This is from Fox's Book of the Martyrs, chapter 3, which is on the first persecution of Nero. Uh, Fox records, he says, Eusebius, moreover, writing of the death, not only of Peter, but also of his wife, affirmeth that Peter, seeing his wife go to her martyrdom, be like as he was, yet hanging upon the cross. So imagine, Peter's about to be put to death. He's on the cross already, and he's still alive. And he sees them grab his wife, and they're going to put her to death, perhaps with him watching. And it says, He was greatly joyous and glad thereof, who, crying unto her with a loud voice and calling her by her name, bade her remember the Lord Jesus. Such was then, saith Eusebius, the blessed bond of marriage among the saints of God, and thus much of Peter. We live, in a, we live an easy Christian life in some way, don't we, church? So imagine for yourself, what would you say to your fellow believer? What would you say when your time has come? If you were able to discern that time, what would you say? What matters the most? Lots of things come through our minds, but here's what we learn from the Apostle Peter. If you're living your life right and you have been faithful, then the last thing you have to say should be the same thing that you've already been saying. Let me say that again. If you're living your life right and have been faithful, the last thing that you should have to say should be the same thing that you've already been saying. Remember. Remem remember. Why would we wait to say something that is important to the very end of our life but not haven't, and haven't already been saying it? By God's grace, may we be living in such a way now that when it comes to that final moment and even before then, May we be living in such a way that the things we would say on our deathbeds is the same thing that we've been saying as we live. So that all we have to say is, remember, dot, dot, dot. Look at verse 12. Peter writes, Therefore I intend to always remind you. Verse 13, To stir you up by the way of reminder. Verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. He's not after newness here. He's not telling them anything new. And note, he's especially thinking of people who actually know these things already. Look at the end of verse 12. He's reminding people who he trusts that they are established in the truth that they have. They know it already, but he's wanting to remind them of it, even still. And the call to remember, to remind, is nothing new between God and his people. And, and God's people in the Old Covenant, they seem to always forget. That was a true problem for them. We've been seeing this even as Pastor Nick has been taking us through Hosea. But the call for them to remember was given early on, even before they entered Canaan. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the Lord God intended them to remember that. He said, essentially, don't forget. And then he instructed them in verse 7 through 9, 
saying, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, why? So they remember, so they don't forget. Back in Deuteronomy 7, verse 18, the scripture says they were told, You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and, all, and to all of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 8.2, they were told, You shall remember all the way which the Lord has led you. In 8.18, they're told, You shall remember the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 19 and 20, we read, And it shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify you against you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you wouldn't listen to the voice of the Lord your God. We've been seeing that in Hosea as well, that, that promise coming true. In Deuteronomy 9-7, they were told, remember and do not forget. First Chronicles 16-12, they were told, Remember the wonderful works that he has done, his miracles and his judgments that he uttered. It, it's sad, really, that the wondrous, mighty, and gracious works of God were often forgotten by many in the Old Covenant. In the 17th chapter of Isaiah, in verse 10, comes a, singular a similar reminder by the prophet. He says these words to them, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Isaiah said in and died in Israel, you have forgotten the Lord your Maker, 51.13. You have forgotten the Lord your Maker. And then one of the saddest statements in the Psalms, the psalmist in Psalm 88, in verse 12, he's, he laments Israel's lack of remembering. And he says, As your, he says, Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Israel it was a land of forgetfulness. They were supposed to be a people who remembered, but they were a land of forgetfulness. When God gave the Passover, the Passover was to be an annual reminder, the, the, the symbol of remembrance to remember not Egypt, but to remember the God of redemption, the God of deliverance, the God of salvation, the God of covenant, the God of grace and mercy, the God of judgment and justice. The same things we are to be remembering, mind you, when we observe the Lord's table together in communion. All of those things, and of course, the fact that the Lord Jesus died for us. That the wages of our sin demanded that, and God met it for us. And there's potential for some in the church to forget as well. Some who profess to be a part of the covenant community end up forgetting. And that lends itself in some cases, to the matter of apostasy, which is why Peter is writing as well. Even you'll see in the beginning of chapter 2, he, Peter says this really interesting phrase where he says that they, they deny the master who bought them. They, they forgot that they have been professing that Jesus bought them. We'll get to that when we get to it. But even people who are truly saved must contend with the flesh. Why is it that we have such a memory for things that we should forget? Why is it that the flesh wants us to remember what we would rather not remember? And the flesh seemingly loses the memory of what we should never forget. It's a real battle. If you know, you know. But even so, in the New Covenant community, 
Even though we are spirit-filled, the instruction to remember still applies. Jesus said to the twelve in John 15, 20, Remember the word which I said to you. Paul said, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Acts 20, 35. And he said to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, born of the seed of the David, risen from the dead according to my gospel. John records that when Jesus was risen from the dead at that point, after they had scattered when he did die, his disciples seemed to remember that he said that he would do that, and then they believed the scriptures. Jude wrote to his readers at the beginning of his short letter, which, mind you, it matches up quite well with 2 Peter 2 into 2 Peter 3. And he says, Jude does, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once knew it. And then at the end of the letter he says, Remember the predictions of the apostles in our Lord Jesus Christ, which again is very similar to 2 Peter 3, 1 through 2. You can look at it there if you're still in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them. I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy apostles and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. James put it another way, meaning the same thing when he said, don't be a forgetful hearer. And honestly, we could go on and on like this. It's all over God's word. It needs to be because we easily forget. Our hearts are prone to wander. And so God, being all wise in scripture, reminds us that we need to be a people who remembers. We need to be encouraged to remember. We need to take up a ministry of reminding one another, all of us, not just me to you, not just the elders to, to the congregation, but all of us should be committed to reminding one another of the gospel, the grace of the Lord, and every blessing in Christ Jesus, the, the whole counsel of God's word even. Children, young people, you should be glad when your parents give you reminders. It's called being a good parent. It's called training up your child in the way that they should go when they teach you and they remind you of rules based upon the law of God. That's a good thing. And even you young people, you can remind your friends, your siblings, of what is right, of what is sin, so that it might be avoided. It's, it's, it's a kindness to your neighbor, to your friend, that they may in faith turn to Christ. Now, even though Scripture is replete with the encouragement to remember, Peter is a bit narrow. He's not just wanting, he's not just saying remember for the sake of remembering. Not here. So verse 12 is straightforward. You'll understand it without a problem, I think. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Therefore, of course, reaches back to the prior text that he has been discussing, uh, which concerned godliness and the greatness of salvation and the, the blessedness that comes with a true biblical assurance. And so, because of Christ's divine power, he has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Because he has given to us these very precious and great promises. Because you have escaped the corruption of the world by partaking of the divine nature. And he's saying, I'm going to remind you of these qualities. This is the power for godliness that he mentioned earlier. And these qualities specifically then are those things that he encouraged them to supplement their faith with. So beginning in verse 5, he began to talk to them about the pattern for godliness and by adding to your faith moral excellence, 
and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and brotherly kindness and, and godliness and love. And then when these qualities are yours and when they are increasing, he says, the purpose of godliness, you're not going to for forget your spiritual condition. You're going to remember that you're saved. And so because of the greatness of salvation and because of the glorious blessedness of a true biblical assurance, he says, therefore, I intend to always remind you of these things. I don't want you to forget how great the salvation is that you have been given in order that you might thank God for it and praise God for it and glorify God for it and then take advantage of all of its resources. And I don't want you to ever forget how marvelous it is to have the assurance of salvation, so I'm going to always be ready to remind you of these things. There is the reality that Christians can't forget the blessedness of salvation and wander off into sin, right? That we can turn our back on the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we could turn our back on multiplied grace and peace, and we could turn our back on all of the divine power that grants to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We can turn back on the precious, magnificent promises that are ours as partakers of the divine nature. And we could wander off into sin. And so here he says, I am always ready to remind you about this. And it's important because wandering into sin will often forfeit the assurance that we are supposed to have. And so he is eagerly wanting to remind us of these crucial, crucial, essential, important, the greatness of our salvation and the blessedness of assurance. But I think that this reminder can also be seen in a broad sense as well. The encouragement to remember isn't just about the things that he's already said, but also about the things that he will say as well. And so remember, he speaks of reminding again in chapter 3. But... If you just sort of do a quick scan through this letter, you'll see that in addition to a need for holiness and godliness, that in the very next section, beginning at verse 16, he talks about the inspiration of Scripture. He then goes on to talk about the danger of false teaching in chapter 2 and the reality of judgment. And then in chapter 3, he focuses on the return of the Lord Jesus. These are his reminders as well, and all of these, as we'll see, are connected to the exhortation to be godly, to be holy, because what he's saying is true, the inspiration of Scripture needs to be godly. Because judgment is real, you ought to be godly. Because false teaching is dangerous, you ought to be godly. Because the Lord will return to judge the living and the dead, you ought to be godly. All of this letter, all of it, is the Apostle Peter's last testament so that his, his readers would remember to be godly. By the way, would you also notice in verse 12 that there's a, a future tense here. He says, therefore I shall always be ready to remind you. And he's simply saying, whenever I'm given the opportunity, at any point, whenever I can do it, I will do it. I want to remind you. But there's another thought in his mind here that he is now writing this letter and he is looking not just at the writing of the letter, but the future reading of the letter. And he's anticipating that everyone who reads this letter is going to again find Peter encouraging them to remember that he's ready to remind us of these things. Every time Second Peter is picked up and read, Peter is reminding us of these things. And so both preaching and writing has a place in reminding. You might remember what the Baptist Catechism 
uh, said in question 94 that we went over a few weeks ago in our evening service. It was on the topic of God making the word a means of grace, that it was effectual to salvation. And the word of God we saw was primary in building them up, building the church up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, they also do it, but they must also include and be informed by the Word of God. And the Word of God comes to us both preached and written, but it is especially the preached Word that is made effectual. It is the preached Word that God uses to give grace primarily through the Holy Spirit who lives in us to help us to remember. The preached Word is primary. You're here now receiving the preached word. Come back later tonight to receive the preached word once again. Churches that aren't giving their people two different sermons on the Lord's Day should in some sense be expecting their people to be half as holy, half as prepared as those who are attending too. They, they're receiving half of the reminders. Some churches will have a Wednesday evening service to further the net of the preached word as well. And that's because, again, the preached word is the primary means of grace. It's where the whole gathered community is encouraged to remember the gospel and the promises of God. All of the New Testament letters, with the exception of Philemon, were written to groups, intended to be read by whole groups. And then the pastors would take the letters and they would preach to the group from the letter, just like we do with them now. Regular small groups weren't a, a normal thing. That, that's modern. Same with age-segregated groups. That's also a modern development. That wasn't the norm until the 20th century. Just consider the letter to the Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 5 contain these deep theological truths and exhortations to what are obvious adult Christians, thinking of the sins and the encouragements that are mentioned there. But then in chapter 6, without the blink of an eye, the apostle speaks directly to children. And he tells them, and what, did he, what does he do? He reminds them of the fifth commandment. The preached word to the gathered community is primary. And secondarily, the written word is also used. The written word, as the Baptist Catechism reminds us, is also an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. And so, friends, we should take advantage of the opportunities that we have before us with the Word of God so readily available. It's a blessing that we have God's Word in our homes or even in our pockets on our phones. And so it's a good idea to have some sort of a plan to read it daily, to take advantage of the nearness of God's Word so that you would remember uh, midweek small groups actually would fall into this category, really, of attending to the written word. This is, a, again, not the primary means. It's a secondary means because it's not the whole body growing together. Whether it's just you or your small group, it's not as good as the preached word when the whole church that is willing to gather and able to gather comes together, but it's still good. And we should attend it, depending on grace and the Holy Spirit to make it effectual in our lives. But generally speaking, friends, we need to get away from this individualistic, pietistic model of growth, which seems to stand to so many to be in favor of the church gathered. Your best times of growth aren't actually your quiet times. It's not your small group times. It's when you come together as a church and partake of the preached word, distractions and all, 
and you go to the Lord's table with your church family and it positions you at that point then to do what Ephesians 4 says, to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. So the whole body, the whole body, right? Not just you by yourself, not just a little small group of you, but the whole body, which is all of us who have the spirit, can work properly so that it builds itself up in love. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's in the context of the church gathering. Take advantage of the Sunday school hour. Come to the Sunday school hour. Matt's wake up a little bit earlier. Do it. Come. It helps you to remember. We have a two-service model here, friends. It's for your good. Two different, two different sermons, one in the morning, one in the evening, early evening. It's good. And certainly, we see that that day is drawing near. Every day we live, it's more near. Whether that day is the return of our Lord Jesus or if it is the putting off of our tent, we should seek to gather all the more. We are stronger when we do so. And Peter here as well. He wants to have his people avoid the hazards of neglecting. He, he wants to work hard to press home these issues. And so he says, I'm always ready to remind you. I will make every effort to remind you. I will stir you up by a way of reminder. I'll remind you in my preaching. I'll remind you in my teaching. I'll remind you by penning this letter, which will go on throughout the future whenever it is read to remind you once again. He wanted to leave a legacy. He wanted to leave a final testament to remind people of the greatness of salvation and the blessedness of assurance and to make sure that false teachers and false doctrine didn't steal any of them away. Much of the ministry, friends, is reminding you. It's telling you what you already have heard. It, it, it truly baffles me when I hear of churches act like they have this new great thing, this secret, this new thing that's just going to get you so motivated as if what God has given us isn't enough. Uh, Charles Hodge, the 19th century old school Presbyterian theologian of Princeton, once boasted that no new ideas would come out of Princeton while he taught there. He's exaggerating, of course, but his point is a good one. No new ideas will come out of Princeton while I have anything to do with it, he said. And what he was saying is that when it comes to preparing men for the gospel ministry, he has no interest in novelty. This is obviously before Princeton became a liberal cesspool. But he didn't want anything new. It was all about reminding. It's the Holy Spirit's job even to bring us to remembrance, John 14, 26. I hope that it's not uncommon for you all to walk away from first family and say, well, I've heard that before. Good, <laughs> because the day that I announce something new to you, some new truth that you've never heard before, you can get rid of me. It's why I want to, us to work on our Catholicity, recognizing our brothers and sisters in other churches, even other denominations, uh, other denominations where the Reformation values are kept important or kept key. It's why, we should it's why we should value the historic creeds. It's why we should embrace the Second London Baptist Confession from the 17th century as our church statement of faith since we're no longer with the SBC. It's because there is nothing new for us to put forward to you. This is God's word, and it hasn't changed. 
There are no new truths to this generation, only a clearer understanding of the Word of God, perhaps a truer interpretation, but it is a ministry of reminding, reminding you of doctrinal truth, reminding you of the moral requirements which are to be done in response to God changing you. Peter was really no different than the other New Testament teachers. I pointed that out earlier, but listen to a few more. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 15, 15. I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. Paul knew that every time he spoke or every time he wrote, he was not necessarily saying something new. But that was all right. Philippians 3, 1 is very pointed verse. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to you. There is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Or that glorious chapter in 1 Corinthians in which Paul proclaims the excellencies of Christ compared to Adam and then also the hope of the resurrection. Do you remember how chapter 15 starts? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Brothers and sisters, remembering is something that God wants us to do. But it's also something that we don't always do well. But God has not left us alone in this regard. He has given to us His Spirit so that we might remember. He's given to us His Word, and especially in the modern era, so that we might remember as it's preached and as it's read. And not to be neglected, He has given to us each other so that we might each have a ministry of reminding. Let's ask for grace that we may be faithful to do that for each other. And let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you glory and praise. And thank you for bringing to remembrance in our minds these essential truths, Lord. We know how easy it is to forget, how often it is that our hearts are prone to wander. And so we are so glad that you are gracious and merciful to us in Christ. And we pray that you would give us over to remembering the truth of your word. And we ask also for grace that we might be active in a ministry of reminding one another of these glorious things. Lord, when we are sad, we ask that you would help us to be sad with one another. When we are happy, we ask you to help us to be happy with one another. And that in those moments, you would bring to bear upon all of our hearts the truths of your word, so we may minister to one another, and we may build each other up in the bonds of love with you, Christ, as our head. And we are grateful for your promises, which we know are sure and true. And so we bless your holy name and thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.